what I'm hoping and praying for is, and I hope some of you will be okay with my saying this. If you're not, it's not very much you can do about it, I suppose. <laughs> Keith Collins is much more of a diplomat than I am until he gets upset, and then he's actually, you know, more aggressive than I am, if you can imagine that. I'm hoping and praying that after this series is over in about three or four weeks, whatever it takes, that those of you who have not typically been coming to School of the Word and are here because of the medals, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you're here. But I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit will show you the necessity of coming together to study the Word, coming together around the fellowship of the Word, listening, learning, reading, investigating. And hopefully as we go through this series, and I think this morning and next week is going to precipitate more of this from many of you, we're going to begin this morning discussing issues and next week issues, especially these two weeks, <clears throat> which I think and I know for many are going to be a very deep challenge to you. So let me not warn you of this, but let me excite you for this because the challenge will be, what is God really saying? Is he saying what I have thought he has been saying? What I have been taught over the years he's been saying? And then hopefully this morning we are going, let me say this clearly this morning, we are going to allow the Holy Spirit to speak through, uh, to us through the Word of God. And if we hear something with which we disagree, oh, that can't be, I, I, no, no, no. Can we make a decision to not be men and women of God who live on the bases of what we think and what philosophically is difficult for us, what our tradition has been, but let us be like the Bereans in Acts 17. They took this word from the Apostle Paul. They had never heard it before. <gasps> Incredible. Can it be? I don't know. This is crazy stuff. A man rising from the dead. I mean, this is lunacy. And they did not allow their philosophical predispositions and traditions to override what the Word of God was. It says they went to the Scriptures. They didn't talk to the mom and them, and they didn't talk to one another about, Jerry, do you really think this and really think that? They opened the Word of God, and they allowed the only one who speaks truth and who can speak truth and who can open our hearts and minds to truth and who can sanctify us by the truth, having been saved by the truth by this one, the Holy Spirit. And they allow Him to be their preeminent teacher. Can we make a decision to do that this morning? and next week and the week after and then the closing lessons will be we'll discuss some difficult te texts Bible passages and we may even we thinking about hopefully we'll be able to give a an entire lesson in here to kind of a panel discussion of questions and concerns that you may have so if you have things you're not sure of if there are issues that I don't know about this what about that write them in your notes and then hold them, if you would, until the end of the series because so often answers are given as the series progresses. And this morning, by the way of notes, I apologize for not having the notes. They will be to you next week. <clears throat> Several difficulties this week. The main difficulty this week was Evan May and Rebecca were out of town. And I've, we've told Evan, we've told him, no more is he allowed to be out of town when I don't take my vacation. And he actually has says he thinks that'll be the easier for him too. <laughs> so I leaned heavily on Jason Stubberfield this week, and he helped me with this as Evan has. Uh, and, and let me tell you this. I want to make sure you know this. None of this counts for class, so we'll have to go over today. And I don't mind. Bill did it year ago I can do it let me just say this to me 
it is a marvelous and wonderful what word do I want not protection maybe so but I can't find my word right now that there are guys on staff that I can go to submit what I believe the Lord wants me to teach receive from them this that add this don't add what about that and so on and feel that this is a teaching not just from one man primarily it is but from a team isn't this the way God does it Father Son Holy Spirit together at work so I think this is good this uh, security this is a security for me because quite simply I trust God but I don't trust my hearing from him so well that I should do this without anyone helping me on this so thank you two men give these two men a, a, a praise thank you yes that's right thank you, thank you. so if there are mistakes this morning it's their fault let's pray <laughs> father thank you so much what a glorious gracious great good kind God you are father cause this to be the centrality of our understanding that controls our thinking and our hearing this morning that when we hear about unconditional election we will hear it with a view of looking at him who died for us father that we will never allow any word teaching misunderstanding mystery deep thing to cause us to question your goodness so father would you undergird everything this morning with this massive ministry of the gospel God is good God is right God is just in all of his ways his thoughts are not our thoughts his ways are not ours they're so much higher than ours and our ways as the heavens are above the earth and the deep things belong to the Lord father we will thank you for the little bit of revelation that you have given us enough to be saved sanctified and secured for all time and we leave all the rest that you have not shown us in your hands knowing that you are trustworthy and that you're good in Jesus name we praise you amen well let's begin this morning you remember that last week's class I ended with this particular scripture you may remember this by the way if you did not come last week or you want a set of the CDs you know for your own keeping or whatever we have those you can go online I think I don't know quite how that's done but I'm, I've been told that you can do that you remember last week's class ended with this scripture John 6 44 no one may, uh, may I could we repeat that word together no one no one one more time no one now how many of us are in that no one all of us are in that no one no one can the word can means ability no one can can means ability no one no one can come to me to Jesus no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws that person so why do we need to be drawn why do we need to be drawn because you remember from last week we discussed our complete moral righteous inability and desire we are morally in God's sight completely bankrupt remember what we mean the relationship there or the context of being morally bankrupt is not an uh, inability to do good I mean have you been watching on television the thing from Aurora Colorado how many of these people who died covering their either wife or child or someone else they love have you seen that is that good yes it's good it's incredibly good and so the Lord isn't saying nobody does good the context of no one does good or understands or searches is not within the context of man's natural functioning and ability it's within the context of not good deeds but if you drop one O from the good you have I believe the context that you need to have for good deeds drop one of the O's from good deeds and what do they become God deeds 
as far as God generated, God honoring, God's goal in mind and His glory, we are absolutely, completely bereft of any ability whatsoever when we're born into this world. Thus, we need to have that righteousness given to us so that we can become the good, searching, seeking, understanding, caring, worshiping people of God. So the question is, no one can come to the Father except those whom the Father draws me, draws him. Well, does God draw some and not others? Whom does God draw? Why do some believe the gospel and some reject it? Have you ever shared the gospel and in one instance the person almost immediately knocks you down to be saved? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever shared the gospel and there was a quick, yes! Anybody has ever had that experience? We've all had that experience. But have we had the experience that when you begin to share the gospel and you talk about sin, you talk about Jesus, and you talk about forgiveness, and you talk about repentance, all of a sudden folks turn on you. Anybody had anybody turn on them? Yes, we all have. Well, what's the difference? Why one person saying, yes, yes, and the other person saying, hell no? No, that's what they're saying. I'm not being cute. That's what they're saying. Well, what's the difference? What is going on here? Well, the answer, at least in part, is given with the you in the tulip. Unconditional election. Election has to do with choosing to draw. Choosing to draw. Election has to do with God's will or choosing to draw people to him. Listen to the way, the Wayne, listen to the way Wayne Grudem puts it. Election, and we'll have these notes for next week if you don't get them all today, but do please try to take as much as you can as you're listening. Election is an act of God before creation in which God chooses some people to be saved. Uh-oh. Chooses some people to be saved. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Now, first, let's get the issue of election, if you would, out of the way. Does God elect? Is the Bible, does the Bible teach that God unilaterally, on his own, according to the freedom of his own will and disposition and purpose, does God choose, does God elect? Let me just go through a couple of things here. We could do a massive study on this, which would take a long time. God chose Abraham out of all the people's in the world, God came to one man. Choosing one man, he bypassed all the others. Do we see this? Choosing one, he bypassed all the others in Genesis chapter 12. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael was the firstborn. And the Lord said, no, this is not the man through whom my righteous work will occur. My righteous work will occur through the lineage of Isaac and not Ishmael. So God made a separation. He chose one over the other. God chose Israel over all the other nations of the world. Listen to what he says to Israel in Deuteronomy 14 too. Moses says this, explaining. He says, the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So, so God chose Israel. He didn't choose the other Semite, Semite nations. He didn't choose the Assyrians. He didn't choose the Japanese. He didn't even choose the Britons who were living in Britannia in those days. Can you imagine that? He chose Israel. Now, why he overlooked the English, I'm not quite sure, but he chose Israel. And in choosing Israel, how many of us have a problem that God chose Israel and passed over others? How many of us have a real a problem with that? I can't imagine God choosing Israel and not choosing the Japanese or the Chinese, or the Indians. Now, we don't have a problem with that. Let's allow us not having a problem with that, with his other choosing. I don't think any of us have ever stayed awake at night wrestling and wondering the audacity to choose Israel over the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Bigites. I mean, why? Why would God have done this? I don't find myself wrestling over this. I don't find myself accusing God of things over this issue. God chose Moses out of all the people who were Israelites or Jews 
in Egypt. God chose one man, Moses, to lead his people. God chose David to be king. I mean, David has seven brothers, for goodness sakes. And in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel says, no, 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 no. That one out there, yes. Do any of us have problems with God choosing David rather than one of his other brothers? Any of you ever sat up at night worrying about that? God chose to regather his people from the Babylonian captivity. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. How many of you are glad, at least at this point, God makes the choice? God chooses his people. Jesus chose. This is what he said on a couple of occasions in John. It's recorded in John, as you will see that in your notes. Did I not choose you, the twelve? I chose you. These disciples were not looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for them. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I know whom I have chosen. 1 Peter 2.9. You, talking to the church, are a chosen race. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, God has chosen you. Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So from Genesis to Revelation, what do we see? We see the clear biblical proof, unassailable proof, clear, God chooses so the question isn't does God choose does God elect that's not the question all of us know God elects but the question is this what is the basis on what grounds on what basis does God elect is the basis unconditional or conditional Now, if you're taking notes you may want to write a couple of these things remember when the teacher makes an emphasis that means it's going to be on the final exam do you remember that when you were in high school and the teacher made an emphasis and then you wondered why is he emphasizing it so much it's important it's gonna be on the exam and you flunked the exam because you didn't understand is the basis of election unconditional or conditional two big issues is it unconditional or conditional is that the basis the reason the grounds of God's election it has to be one or the other it has to be one or the other unconditional what does that mean unconditional election if unconditional election is the basis of God's choice that means this that God elects or he chooses solely completely according to the purposes of his own will which we see in Ephesians 1 5 this is the basis of his choice what his own personal purpose and will are that's unconditional not on the basis of any pre-existing condition in us unconditional election says God's choice God's decision is totally completely and forever contain within himself and is about himself and for his own personal purposes and pleasure for the display of his glory that's unconditional election it excludes completely and absolutely any pre-existing issue activity content of anything in the one chosen You see, because otherwise God is bound to the ones whom he chooses. And God is not bound by anyone or anything. He is, as we said the first meeting, the only completely free being in all eternity. He is not influenced or manipulated or controlled by anything or anyone apart from himself. And he will not subject himself to be bound by anything outside of himself. He's not going to do it. You don't see that in Scripture. He cooperates and condescends, and I'm moving to a different direction. I will stop. What is conditional? What is the conditional basis? The conditional basis simply says this, that God elects on the basis of some pre-existing condition, that there's something in me or about me or that I'm going to do 
that God sees ahead of time, knows about me ahead of time, and because of that in me, whatever it is, God uses that as his reason for saving me. That puts it, the location of the activity or the, the decision where? In me, rather than in God. You see, those who hold to conditional election will refer to Romans 8.29, and you may open your Bibles to Romans 8.29. That's going to be the text that we'll look at for a few moments. Those who hold to conditional election, that there's something in me, about me, something that I will do that causes God to elect me. The text for that, conditional election, among other texts, but I think probably the primary text, or at least one of the primary texts would be this, Romans 8, 29. Now the temptation is to go back to Romans 8, 28 and travel through, but again, time doesn't permit. So let's read together. Romans 8, 29. For whom... He who? God what? Foreknew. For whom he foreknew. Now, if you underline in your Bible, and that's okay, underline the word foreknew. For whom he foreknew, he did what? He did what? Predestined. Underline the word predestined. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed. If you want to underline the word conform, that's fine. But the two words that we're going to talk about here, foreknowledge and predestination. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Remember the word image, Genesis 1.26. God said, let us create man in our image and according and or after our likeness. So here we have the image of Genesis 1.26, which is God's purpose, choosing a people to become the image for which he created all things, the image of his son, a people with whom and in whom and through whom he would dwell forever. So basically, this is the thought. God knowing ahead of time who would express faith in Christ, who would accept the gospel, knowing ahead of time, because God does know things ahead of time, correct? knowing ahead of time that you would accept and you would accept what you would reject and you would accept that on that basis God chose those people conditioned on the fact that they would accept the gospel are you with me this morning I don't want to go too fast I don't want to go too slow I'd rather go more slowly but so that's that's the basic understanding of Arminian theology God knows ahead of time I'm going to say yes to Jesus and so he, foreknown, he ordains or predestines me having foreknown that I will say yes to Jesus and I get saved. That's why he saves me. He knows that you will say no so you don't get saved. That's the reason. It puts the decision in me. Now, the key word here is foreknow. Foreknow. It's one of those Greek words that have two parts. And if you want a detailed explanation of this, really, uh, Evan May would give it to you. No, no, seriously. Evan May will give it to you. But here's the word foreknow. In the Greek, the first part of the... How many of you remember prefixes? Those are words that go in front of a word. So conditional means one thing. Unconditional undoes it. Remember how those prefixes kind of change the meaning of a word? Some of you didn't do well in English, did you? Okay. The word foreknow, the word pro, P-R-O, means ahead of time. F-O-R-E, pro. It means ahead of time. The second part of the word is gnosko. Gnosko. G-N-O-I-S-K-O. G-N-O-I-S-K-O. I think that's the spelling of it, although Evan and Todd saying yes, so we have some Greek geniuses here. I am not one of them. Gnosko. Gnosko means to know. So look at it. To know ahead of time. But it's the understanding of what the word gnosko means. Because the word for, pro, I mean for, pro means ahead of time. So, yes, that's right. God knows ahead of time. So the question is, what does gnosko mean? Gnosko has to do with the knowing 
through or in a relationship. The gnosko is a word to know through experience, through relationship. It has to do with a personal relating to and experience of. It's not just knowing something that I learned in school. It's the knowing through relationship. That's what this word means. No. That's part of the answer. Now look at the word again. Romans 8, 28. What is the first... What is the second word in Romans 8, 28? The second word, 1, 2. Whom. What is whom? Whom is a relative pronoun. Whom is a relative pronoun in the objective case. But how many of you would talk about I saw Johnny hit a ball and then refer to that hitting of a ball as whom? What would you say? It's a what? It's a what? It's an action. So you would say, I saw what Johnny did. So when the word says whom, what does that accentuate? What does the grammar tell us? We're not talking about an action primarily, although God obviously does know our actions ahead of time. But why does he know our actions ahead of time? Not just because he looks down the corridor of time and sees Amber do something. He knows Amber so personally and well in such a loving relationship that he knows all about Amber and what she will do. And so whom refers to people, not to activities primarily. So when someone says, well, Romans 8.28 tells us that God knows ahead of time what you're going to do, James, you say, that's right. But the word whom and for no means something, something much deeper and more grand than just knowing that I'm going to do something or I won't do something. It's a much greater word than that. Genesis 4.1. So Adam knew his wife. What does this mean? He had intimate relationship with her. They knew one another in a loving, intimate relationship. They were connected. God had made the two to become one. They were connected in fellowship, in union, in relationship through love. So therefore, Adam knew his wife. Listen to this verse in 1 Peter 1.20. He, or Christ, was foreknown. The same word, prognosco. The same word in 1 Peter 1.20. Christ was foreknown by God before the foundation of the world. Do you think that that just means that God knew what Jesus would do? Or do you think that this is a statement of the most incredible, intimate relationship of love in all eternity? Which one do you think it is? A relationship or an activity? Which one do you think it is? How many of you think it's a, just an activity? How many of you think it's a relationship term, you see? And so when Paul says, whom God foreknew, he's using it in the same way about us that the Apostle Peter is using the same word to convey the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. The relationship between God the Father and God the Son from all eternity is described with the same word that God says that He knows us this same way. Can you say amen? This is incredible. I spend time on this because I think this is the crux of the matter. I need to move on. When did this knowing happen? When did this happen? Listen to Ephesians 1, 4. God chose or elected us in Christ. Remember the relationship between the Father and Son from all eternity. God foreknew Christ in that loving, intimate relationship. Therefore, He foreknows us. He knows us in that loving, intimate relationship as He sees us, as He plans us, as He purposes us in Christ. 
And so his relationship with Christ from all eternity is also his relationship with us. We have one with him because God has determined that we would be in that same relationship within the context of knowing Christ, of in Christ, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us. So when did he know us? God chose or elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Listen to this from Jeremiah 1.5. The Lord is speaking to Jeremiah, explaining to him what's going to be happening and how he's going to be using him. And he says this, I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You see, this is not an act that Jeremiah one day realized he needed a savior and he started seeking for Jesus and God saved him because he knew he would be receiving the gospel and then as a result of that God chose him and made him a prophet when did God declare that he would be a prophet before the foundation of the world before he was born why because in eternity past God made these determinations that according to his will this man would be one who would be used to move along and be helping and ministering in the will of God toward the completion of it at the end. You see, God personally and lovingly knows each one who was saved before we were created. If you are a believer this morning, God has known you for all eternity. You came to find out about it when you experienced being born again. You and I came to find out about it and discover it when we were born again. But God has personally, intimately, and lovingly, and caringly, and guardingly, and guaranteeingly known us always in Christ. And that is why he elected us into salvation. Unconditional election is necessary if anyone is to be saved because of our moral depravity. If unconditional election isn't true, none of us had better depend on our moral bankruptcy to move us to be saved because the Bible says no one does good. And by faith, putting faith in Christ is a good or God deed. And when the Bible says you don't have it, we better not try to depend on it and hope for it. Personally, I am extremely glad God found nothing in me, and he did the entire work. Otherwise, I'd still be out there reveling and going to hell. Well, how is election implemented? How does God implement his elected purpose? He predestines. Go back to Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he what? He what? Predestines. The word predestination. Uh Uh-oh. You see, predestination is not a scary word, nor is it a dirty word. How many of you have heard, and maybe even we ourselves have used it, we have deprecated or put down or criticized or and horrified about the word predestination. You see, but it's a Bible word. It's the Holy Spirit's term. We forget that. We think this is something that Calvin, Luther, or some other reformed person 500 years ago came up to frighten the masses. Predestination is a Bible word. Is a Bible word. You see, predestination is God's gracious and loving work that guarantees. Predestination is God's gracious and loving work that guarantees that we will be adopted as his children. See, predestination is God implementing his elective purpose. Listen to this from Ephesians, the last part of verse 4 into verse 5, talking about God's work. In love, how? Motivated by what? Come on, I can't hear you. Love. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption God elected us because he foreknew us before the foundation of the world and having elected us then he starts the process of getting us into the kingdom of God through this work of predestination which is his work of carrying out his elective purpose for bringing us 
into the kingdom of God. This morning, if you were saved, you were saved because God's work of predestination guaranteed that you be here. It is a good word. It is a wonderfully gracious and kind and great and enormously important word in the Bible. So what does predestination mean? It means that God who elected us guarantees through the predestination process that we will become the people of his election. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Listen to what Romans 8.30 says. Are you in Romans 8.29? Then look at the next verse. Remember 8.29 says, For whom he, whom he foreknew, he predestined. And look at 8.30. Whom he what? Call, what? What does he say in 8.30? He doesn't say call first. Whom he predestined. He's picking it up from 8.29. For whom he predestined. Paul's going to tell you. Let me explain to you how predestination works. For whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is the work. This is the way it's done. The Bible explains it. You don't have to be in darkness. I wonder what happens and what comes first. The Holy Spirit tells you. One, two, three, four. And we simply need to believe that. We may not understand it always. We may not even like it. I, mean, I have to admit, there's some things about the Lord and His ways and so on I sometimes don't like. Oh, that's surprising. I'm the only one who doesn't like things that God does sometimes. <laughs> okay. I'm thankful I'm the only one. You see, God's ministry of predestination guarantees that we will be called into the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to read these verses, but the instructive set of verses would be Romans chapter 10, verses 10 to 17. Yeah, 13 to 17. Let's do that. Romans chapter 10, 13 to 17 kind of outlines it. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how are they going to get saved? Well, somebody has to be sent, and the person who has to be sent has to have the gospel, and those who hear the gospel, etc. So Paul gives you the running understanding of how in the world we're going to be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. But can't anybody call upon the name of the Lord? Anybody whom God calls not only can but will. Anybody God calls not only can call upon the name of the Lord, but he will. And you'll find that out in a couple of weeks. You see... This is the call of the gospel. It's a worldwide call. The call goes out into all the world. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 14. All the world. This gospel shall be preached where? All the world. The world hears the clarion call of the Son of God through the gospel, applied, spoken through and applied by the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 7, verses 28 through 27 to 29. I'm trying to remember where the verses are. Here's how Jesus describes the call, the call of the gospel. Whom he predestines, he what? He, he foreknows, he predestines, he calls. This is how Jesus describes the call. What does it mean to be called? It's a picture of the shepherd standing in front of the sheepfold and there are 10,000 sheep there and Jesus says this with all the multitude of sheep all these sheep here's what Jesus says the call of the gospel is my sheep who? who? my sheep for whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed my sheep he's doing it on the basis of whose they are and not what they are. My sheep is personal possession. God is possessive. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. Remember? To know. Gnosko. Prognosko. Foreknown. Romans 8, 29. 1 Peter 1, 20. To know. I know them. How? In personal, intimate relationship of acceptance and love. I know them. Let's put the words together and begin to build an understanding here of what the Bible says and not what we think it says. I know them. And they 
follow me. It doesn't say, oh, I hope you follow me. I'm waiting for you to follow me. I think they're going to follow me. He says, they hear and they follow. John 10, 27 to 29, I think it is. He says, they hear my voice, the gospel. And when they hear the gospel, they what? They're going to respond by what? Following. They hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Sometimes people say, yeah, but that one's no one snatching them out of God's hand. But you can take yourself out of God's hand. You couldn't put yourself in God's hand, and you ain't taking yourself out of God's hand. You didn't put yourself into God's hand, and you're not going to take yourself out of God's hand. You did not put yourself into God's hand. Who in the world can escape the great and mighty hands of a glorious God? There are no leaks in this hand. There are no leaks. His hand is not a sieve. It's a glorious closed hand. And not one molecule can ever get out of the hands of this great and glorious and God of glory. Don't listen to the foolishness. They make God to be some old dribbling old man. And they hope to drop something. God ain't dropped nothing. He isn't going to drop anything. He isn't going to drop you. Sometimes you just got to get excited about a verse. And you got to yell. If you want to yell, yell. If you want to jump, jump. But do what we need to do to give God praise for His glory. Amen. Thank you for getting excited. Not about me. This is about God. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. He's even greater than the one who's trying to sneak out whom they say is going to get out. He's greater. He's more powerful. Come on, man. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Well, then why aren't everybody? Why isn't everybody saved? Turn to John chapter 10, 26. 10, 26. Is this yours or hers? Yeah, I thought it was yours. A little rattle on. Oh, well, that's 1026. Now, before you read it, now I want, to, I want you to be honest with me this morning. Let's not be theological and afraid or whatever. How many of you have heard this and believe this? You're not saved because you don't have faith. In order to be saved, you got to have faith. I'm the only one who's ever heard that. You're not saved because you didn't have faith. But let's read what the Bible says. What does Jesus say? What? What does he say in the beginning? You do not believe you don't have faith because you're not one of my flock. He didn't say you're not one of my flock because you didn't believe, which is the way we normally hear it preached. He did not say you're not one of my flock because, Claude, you didn't believe, baby. You just didn't come in because you didn't exercise faith to believe me, and I could come in once you believe. Once Claude believes, he opens the door wide, and then Jesus can come sailing in. That is not the picture. Jesus says, you didn't believe. Why don't some believe? Why is it that some reject and some say yes? You didn't believe. Why? Because you're not my sheep. You're not of my household. You're not foreknown before the foundation of the world to be predestined, to be called unto sonship. Underline that and make sure you get it right. John 10, 26, and the next time someone says, well, you're not a sheep because you didn't believe. Say, where is that in the Bible? And they're going to show you. And say, that's not in the Bible. And when the hands go to show you wrong, say, read it to me. And then he starts up, and let the word of God stop the mouth. What does Jesus say? You do not believe. Why? Because you're not of my flock. You're not my sheep. You were not foreknown. You were not in Christ before the foundation of the world. Only those in Christ before the foundation of the world are saved and will be saved if you would. They will experience that salvation. 
Hebrews 4, 12 and 4, 2. For good news came to us. Wow, look at the time. Just as it to them. But the message they heard, they all heard it, did not benefit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith. Everybody heard it, but many didn't receive it by faith. So you see, God's call is not generic. It's just not everybody out there. Everybody out there. God's call is a personal calling. Each one called by name. Years ago, when we lived on camp at Bellcastle, my brother and my sister and I, we stayed outside all day long and into the night because we didn't have television. We didn't have air conditioning. So we stayed outside and played outside. My mother stepped out on the front porch and she bellowed, Thomas, Darren, Peter. And when she bellowed our names, all the kids came running. No, there were only three that came running because we are her children. And she called us by name. She didn't say, hey, everybody out there, y'all come. She said, Thomas, Darren, and Peter. And we came. Why? We didn't come to be her children. We came because we heard the call of our parent. Because we were her children, we came. We didn't come home to be. We came home because we were. We heard a call. See, when God calls us home, he gives us, he gives us the faith to come home. When God calls us home, he gives us the faith. Listen to what Romans 10, 17 says. And you may want to look at Romans 10, 17. Quickly turn there if you have a moment. Romans 10, 17. And then be quickly turning to Romans chapter 12. Because we get two conflicting stories here if we're not careful. Romans 10, 17. Somebody read Romans 10, 17 to me loud. Faith what? Faith? I didn't hear you, brother. Faith what? Say one more time. Faith must come. If it's residential in us when we were born and we exercise faith, and God saw that, and we were saved because of that, then that contradicts. It says faith must come. Coming means that it's outside. Come to my house means you are not in the house. You have to come into it. Somebody turn to Romans chapter 12. I think it's verse 3. Somebody read verse 3. Is it verse 3 I'm thinking of? Faith is what? Does it say, which, am I right on that one? For all who have a measure of faith, which one, what verse am I thinking of? Romans 12, 3. What does it say? Ah, faith has been given to everybody. People use that. Everybody has faith. God gave faith to everybody. It says everybody among you. He's talking to the church. Faith has given to the members of the church, for those among you, to the church. He didn't say everybody in the world has faith, as some say. It says, for those who are among you. Romans 12, 3, Paul is addressing the church. And he's saying, look, you guys have faith to do the work of the ministry. Because he's going to lay out some of the gifts of the uh, ministry later on in this one another issue of relating to one another. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Let me just read it to you. For by grace, grace is a gift. You have been saved. Look, our salvation is a past completed work accomplished on the cross when Jesus said it is finished. That is a moment God forgave us of all our sin. At the cross, you and I were forgiven. In the resurrection, that forgiveness now is made available to us through justification for all time, for all the people of God. That is when the work of salvation occurred. Jesus saved his people completely and forever at the cross. He didn't say, I'm going to try and I'm making it available and I hope somebody says yes to me. The Bible, when you read it, it says God saves, he saves, he saves. He didn't say, I'm going to apply it one day and hope, I mean, uh, share it one day and hope that somebody comes in. He says, I save them all, all my people. So by grace, you have been saved through faith. We are now 
we have been saved we've been born again the holy spirit comes into us ezekiel chapter 36 26 and 27 i will give them my spirit i'll take out the old heart and give them a new heart remember that and god plants in us this gift of eternal life our salvation procured through the shedding of the blood of christ and given to us on the day of pentecost and on now the holy spirit comes and plants it in us and when he does that we are now experiencing and hearing the clarion call of god to come home and our faith is our coming home is our receiving our embracing it is not what we do to get God to come to us. It is our response to what God does in us. And as a result of his planting in us this great salvation, we all receive it. Does predestination mean that God deliberately damns some? God does not cause the lost to reject him. They reject him willingly. And he allows them to reject them. And he allows them to do what they want to do. Lost people, just as we, did what we wanted to do. So God has to intervene and save out of all of lost humanity those whom he decides, decides to do. You see, God is under no obligation to save any. That he saves any, that he saves some, is most startling. It is that deep mystery. You remember the day you were saved you remember the day you came to the realization something's happening inside of me something's going on all of a sudden you were confronted with I need to be saved you see, you said it that way because that was your understanding of it you said it that way I said it that way because from my perspective it looked like I needed to search for God from my perspective that's what it looked like but once I look behind the scenes, I see a great master builder. And I see that my wanting and my searching and my calling was totally the result of and orchestrated by this great master savior. From my perspective, it looked like I was trying and I was seeking and I was doing whatever. I was merely embracing coming home Luke 15 17 the boy came to his senses and he came home why did he come home he didn't come home to become a son he was a son who came home he came home to experience his sonship not to get it he was a son already you see if God hadn't done this none of us would be saved today so let's remember that God could have justly passed us by, but he didn't. He stopped, he stooped, and he saved us. Why? Because he is sovereign and he's loving. So I close with this remark. Thank God that he foreknew us before the foundation of the world so that we would be predestined to eternal life through the call of the gospel by which we came home to him. Amen. See you next week.